the autonomous, thoughtful, humane encounter is at this point not only overrated, but it's it's becoming a uh, a very rare beast, and it, and, it, and it never was as common as we, as we thought it was. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. The son of Eastern European immigrants, Zach Kohini was born and raised in Switzerland, then came to the U.S., where he nurtured a passion for medicine and computers to become one of the nation's leading thinkers, innovators, and mentors at this important and rapidly evolving interface. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Notes used to be our story, narrative but yo, replaced with copy-paste, now a bloated ransom note. Me, I'm at that bedside, focused like a laser beam. On the patient, no, come on, I'm treating the computer screen. Eight dozen warnings, click check boxes, alarm fatigue, Vaseline conflicts with doxy. I do think that you probably use more East Coast rap to talk to somebody from Harvard. <laughs> it's funny because it's so accurate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think pretty much uh, Z Dog really nails the uh, the EHR challenge here, don't you think, Lisa? Yeah, it's no health tech rhapsody, but it's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's hard to think of any topic that frustrates folks in healthcare more than EMRs. It seems like they annoy almost everyone, presumably outside those responsible for revenue capture. I was thinking about this recently, uh, Lisa, in the context of news making the rounds on Twitter regarding Epic. I guess they're creating their own app store for use with their platform. But the catch is that apparently um, Epic has the right to co-op anything, co-opt anything you submit. Did you uh, see that? Ah, yes. Free enterprise. I yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's shocking. So, um, Zach, welcome to the program. We know you're so um, – we're so interested in getting to your history. But maybe we can start with this um, a question worthy of your uh, – distinguished stature. Why do EMRs suck? Well, it's because they got away from doctors. EMRs, I remember well uh, when I was an uh, intern in pediatrics, and I was in this very scary place called the Newborn Intensive Care Unit with machines going ping all around me <laughs> and little, little uh, premature babies, so premature that they literally would forget to breathe. And believe it or not, and for someone who, like me, was thought I was going into internal medicine, quite shocking. The thing you give these little preemies to make them remember to breathe is um, caffeine. And um, and in that context, when I was taking care of these kids, I was using uh, electronic health record system that uh, had been built at the Beth Israel by doctors and had been bought by the Brigham Women's. I was getting subsequent uh, summaries. It was actually not a graphical user, user interface, but it was very fast. It was very obvious where to get all my information. These were menus that were organized by doctors in practice. And I thought this was the way. At the time, I did not know fully the history of the system, but this system was actually originally the work of a cardiologist at um, MGH by the name of Octo Barnett, who built the original mump system. And at that time, it was incredibly uh, forward-looking because 
real-time operating systems where multiple users could log in and share information was only the province of state-of-the-art labs at MIT or Caltech or Bell Labs. And here he was using it in practice with the help of four MIT undergrads. And the point is, this system was built by and for doctors. And it worked really, really great. So it sounds so promising. So what happened? So what happened is it got commercialized, not by the by that doctor, but by some of his uh, former students, and it got spun off into these companies that till today are using the very same technology, but it's no longer built by doctors for doctors. It's built for, uh, for the C-suite, and I'd like to think on a good day is actually helping maximize income, but I'm not even sure that's true <laughs> because it's definitely not maximizing productivity and it's not performing in many ways as well as the original systems that were uh, deployed. And so what happened is doctors were at the forefront of innovation in electronic medical record systems, and then they became dis totally dis disintermediated out from it, partly because... Um, some people in business didn't think that doctors knew enough about their own business, and partly because doctors thought that business was below them. Right. And so it created a perfect storm for the most important lifeblood, the workflow of, of healthcare, to become dictated by engineers and uh, strategists very far from the daily concerns of practicing physicians or their patients. And yet you hear from you know, entrepreneurs all the time, or, or we give advice to entrepreneurs all the time, don't interfere with the hospital workflow because doctors won't accept it, uh, which, which seems to be true from my experience. You know, I mean, the crappy workflow that it may be, it seems very difficult to break the flow to put in new types of products and services. What do you think about that? I think that's um, overblown. And I think the doctor... The, the doctor that that um, cliche refers to is much more a 1980s doctor than a 2017 doctor. A 2017 doctor has been bludgeoned by the CFO into the right productivity, the amount of time they need to see patients, the number of patients they have to see, how they use their rooms efficiently. And that message has gone not only directly from the CFO, it's coming through their department chairs, and they're being told how they need to code, upcode, downcode, uh, their patients, the autonomous, thoughtful, humane encounter is at this point not only overrated, but it's it's becoming a uh, a very rare beast. And it, and it, and it never was as common as as we thought it was. A great example was early in the days of electronic health record systems with that original uh, system that I told you about at the Brigham, where people were talking endlessly about how much an anti-emetic, an anti-nausea drug given often for individuals who are getting chemotherapy, what the dose should be and how often it should be given. Very expensive drug, and there was a lot of good evidence that giving it every eight hours instead of every six hours was sufficient. Endless discussions. So they said, what are, what is, what are we going to put in the order entry system in order to uh, meet all these disagreements? So they said, let's just put a default dose, and then we let There'll be a pop-up menu. Anybody can choose whatever dose they want. So guess what happened? What? They put the default dose at every eight hours, and 95% of the time, no one ever changed it. The point is, when you engage a doctor in a discussion about what they should be doing, what's optimal, that's one story. 
what they actually do is a very different story. And it also speaks to the uh, the role of defaults um, uh, uh, and um, and sort of anchoring. Um, so let's take. Or you I, could call it intellectual laziness. I don't you know. Could. Um, <laughs> so I want to get to all this, but I want to take it <laughs> right. But I just want to uh, yeah. But I just want to point out um, to Lisa's point. Yes, the doctors were ornery and uh, combative, except when it came to actual performance. You give them the default; they just go with right, it. Right. Right. Um, so I wanted to take a step. I want to get back to some of this, but I do want to take a step back and just talk uh, a little bit to understand how you got to where you are now. Um, so my understanding is you were born and raised in Switzerland, the son of Eastern European immigrants. You went to international school in Geneva because your parents wanted you to speak English, the language of science. Yet, although the teachers were British and many of the kids were British, you somehow emerged with a uh, American accent. How did that happen? Oh, it's clearly uh, Jewish genetic determinism. No. Um, <laughs> it, turns out, it, 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 it turns out that... That's what got um, you to be a Harvard doctor. <laughs> Yeah, That's right, exactly. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it turns out, uh, strangely, even in that very uh, anti-American political uh, context of the uh, 19, uh, late, uh, early 1970s around Vietnam, it was the cool thing to be American. So even the British kids with British parents and British teachers ended up all adopting the accents of the minority of students whose parents were actually red-blooded Americans. Wow, wow. So it was quite remarkable. It was, for me, a, very, a really um, dramatic demonstration of uh, La- Lamarckian uh, development of uh, <laughs> cultural uh, memes. I, g- I guess the modern equivalent is probably Canadian then. <laughs> <laughs> no. So then, so the other thing, Zach, is you proudly described yourself as, quote, deep nerd. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like your love of computers really took off when you came to the U.S. to attend college at Brown. Disclosure, much like my wife, my brother Jonathan, and one of your most famous trainees, Atul Butte. That's How right. did you discover computers at Brown? Very simple. Um, uh, social life, even for nerds, um, plays a lot. And so wandering along in my dorm, and I see here I see a door open and a clitter cat, clat, uh coming out of it. And I go into there, and there's a room full of these magical electric typewriters uh, hammering away with kids in front of each one of them. And then Brown had uh, wisely put in a, um, a junior or a sophomore to just mind the store to give kids uh, help when they needed it. And I was just really amazed. It felt, for me, that was a science fiction moment, seeing these computers, these typewriters spit out um, all sorts of things, just apparently autonomously and even specifically allow you to play on characters typed out onto paper a Star Trek uh, Space Wars game. <laughs> and um, This is a big difference between you and me in college. I went the other way when I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Deep nerd. But, you know, for those of us who bear that uh, badge proudly. I'm tracking. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I not only uh, bring out my uh, protractor, uh, but I also uh, call out that uh, 1980s... Uh, iconic movie, Revenge of the Nerds. Oh, absolutely, yes. What happened was, I didn't realize it at the time, but the passion that I was feeling was a a need to know how this was happening. And so it led me to learn programming and then to start taking courses at Brown because Brown having not very much in the way of a core curriculum allowed me to take, take a lot of computer science courses, even though my declared major was biology. And so ultimately I was actually building uh, computers out of uh, flip-flops, out of little um, integrated circuits in order to understand 
how in the heck did this magic appear on paper or on screens all the way from just a few moving electrons. Wow. So it's not like you really found your, your passion. And then I note that next you went to MD, you, you got your uh, MD at, at BU and you told me about a revelation there that it sounds like we both had. It sounds like we were both drawn to medicine for, for really deeply humanistic reasons with the idea of connecting with and helping other people. Uh, and at the same time, we also expected that medicine would be scientific or, or applied science. Yet we each found it to be both more empirical and less scientific than we anticipated and less scientific even than many practicing doctors seem to think it is. How did you come to this realization, and how did it lead to your discovery of informatics uh, related to your PhD work at MIT? Well, the, the way that happened was um, I had really no family members who had ever been in medicine, so I had no preconceptions about medicine, unfortunately, and I didn't find a mentor or even look for one who would tell me what medicine was about. It just seemed interesting at the surface, and it's, you know, bio, it sounded, like, sounded to me like applied biology, and each case gets to be an interesting uh, biological investigation. And of course, it's quite different. It's a noble profession, but what I found that, that I was being asked to do was inhale lots and lots of facts uncritically. Totally true. And, in, and being critical, in fact, was seen somehow as antisocial because I was getting in the way of the necessity to inhale those 20,000 new vocabulary words and understand their context. Is this the early form of, of, of artificial intelligence, just the inhaling of facts? This is the easy form of not <laughs> pissing off your resident when you're a med student. Yeah, no, but, it's, yeah. It's, I, think, and I think it does to your, uh, to your brain what uh, force-feeding geese uh, get done to their livers when they're uh, force-fed for make pâté foie gras. It really does <laughs> melt it down a, a little bit, and you get this fatty de- degeneration. And in fact, um, just fast-forwarding, when I was in my uh, PhD mode, it was initially quite startling that it was the obverse, which is no fact was accepted. If you said one statement, it would be immediately argued against. Totally true. If you, if you t- agreed with your interlocutor, then, of course, they'd start disagreeing with you from the other perspective. This is completely true. This is so accurate. I mean, especially if you're at MIT, that is the, you know, that is the spirit. You know, agreeing is a sign of... Uh, of uh, weakness. That argument is just yeah. contradiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a sign of... Uh, this is so accurate, I gotta tell you. Yeah. yeah. And so what happened, I, was, I got very lucky, which was there was a doctor um, at Boston University who, uh, Rob Friedman, who introduced me to this young uh, um, assistant professor uh, who had just arrived from Caltech, having trained, uh, gotten both an undergrad and PhD in computer science and had originally thought he was going, to, going into physics as all, uh, as all Jewish boys at uh, Caltech at that time, but ended up uh, in this area of medicine and medical decision science and very much was being informed at the time by of Herbert Simon and uh, Kahneman and that whole wonderful uh, confluence of cognitive science, artificial intelligence, and even uh, philosophy. And so... I was introduced to him, and uh, he was initially quite skeptical that this uh, uh, wannabe doctor would be interested in computing. But, in fact, I had done a lot of computing as an undergrad, and we quickly uh, saw that we had very similar ambitions. And he turned into not only my thesis advisor, but uh, my longtime uh, mentor, and uh, really also, by the way, modeled to me how mentors should be. And because I think he's one of the wisest men I know, he's in the, he has continued to be 
a research partner with me for the last few decades. He's on many of my grants. What is, I'd love to know what you think is the most important quality in, in the mentor, you know, the mentors that you have in this gentleman or others. What is it that makes them stand out? Well, I think that what makes them stand out, on the one hand, is remarkably little. I think so many supposed mentors, people in the mentor roles, don't really care. That just caring a little bit goes a really, really long way. Just asking yourself every once in a while, is my mentee going in the right path? Um, are his expectations aligned with what he's actually doing? Uh-huh. Just caring a little bit, unfortunately, and in fact, surprisingly, it, it goes a whole way, as opposed to some mentors who, the majority of mentors who just are thinking too much about their own uh, stuff and don't, not, not that I'm uh, not uh, uh, narcissistic in my own way, but every once in a while <laughs> you stop and you ask yourself what's going on with that, this person's career. The other part is, wisdom that comes from extreme honesty. And so if you're extremely honest about what you do or don't know, that actually, whether you believe it or not, comes off as wisdom, especially when you're honest with yourself about what you've actually learned. And furthermore, it allows you to point out that these other people working in the same domain as your student are not giants out there. And, you know, making it clear to your mentee, they can achieve whatever uh, goals that these other apparent mountainous achievements have uh, seem like, is I, is, I, is I think, if you're sincere about it, quite persuasive. So I think it's, it's just a matter of caring and being honest both about the, the path, the plans, and not pretending like you have answers. For, so, for example, I will make plans with them. I'll make plans with them and a two-year plan. And um, I remember well, um, there's a, we have a, a mutual friend, uh, David Shewitz and I, uh, who's now a CMO at Health Reveal. And this is a very organized person. And she'd want to know her plans in five years from now. And I say, I would tell her, no one I know has a five-year plan worth anything. She might, but yeah. <laughs> we, can t- we can talk about it, and it's good to have a direction, so long as you know that you shouldn't be disappointed. Lisa knows her, too. Yeah. Yes, I do. Christine Chen. 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 Yeah, 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 she's a remarkable. Yeah. Um, Silvers, yeah. But I agree with you. I think, you know, these people who, whether they're just humans or entrepreneurs or whatever the heck they are, uh, five-year plans are tend to be interrupted by reality, luck, and surprise. I think surprise. what's also so interesting about <laughs> what, what Zach's saying is if you sort of look at the, uh, the the blank place and what he's saying, you get a sense of what might be standard for the community where he's at, of, uh, of uh, both the, the, what, what, how some mentors behave and the, the sort of the excessive reverence for other people. And I think just seeing other people with feet of clay is, is so useful. At Harvard uh, and MIT, exactly. excessive uh, reverence. Maybe more generalized. Than that. So I want to get to this other topic. So you completed your training and decided to pursue pediatrics at Children's under the mentorship, a really wonderful mentor, uh, Joe Mizzou, but also one of my mentors who actually trained in adult internal medicine and maybe one of the most decent guys on the planet, just an amazing guy. Um, it sounds like you started writing grants and were serially unsuccessful until you weren't. Unbelievably unsuccessful. Five grants <laughs> that, I, that I thought were my, my best grants ever, not, not a trace, went down without a trace. And, and then, then you wound up with a huge grant, right? The first yeah. of many. By the way, just a quick aside, Joe Mezub was a terrific mentor because he said to me, you're not going to have a career if you don't know how to write grants, which is tough love, but it was true. And so, I, yes, I did uh, um, immediately write a whole bunch of other grants, including this one that you just mentioned, which was to 
build in 1994, we proposed building, and this was very close to the birth of the web, to build a web-based um, electronic health record that would not ju just merely look at one electronic health record, but three different electronic health records. So across the divided care that patients get, to get on the fly aggregation of a patient view across multiple hospitals. Off to the side for a minute. Have you ever gone back and looked at those first five grants and figured out why those failed? Yes. And what is the reason? Not, not, only, not only have I done that, but I, one of my, alas, best received lectures every year is how to write grants. And I always start by explaining that those first five grants, I always used to think were my best five grants, but now I've looked at them and I understand exactly why. So first of all, the erroneous notion that you're trying to sell um, a great product to the review committee, and the more you put into it, the better it's going to be. Instead, the more you put into it, the more hallucinatory and maniacal you seem. <laughs> and, even though, and even though you yourself believe that you can pull it off, the reaction becomes one of uh, disbelief, uh, annoyance with your arrogance. And so, so one thing to do is uh, prom you know, promise less, do more. So the second time you, you put in the grant, you look like a hero. The other thing is... Um, and understanding, have, having now reviewed a lot, a lot of grants, is you've got to understand that this is one of the classic examples of attention deficit theater. Because just like a VCs looking at uh, hundreds of business plans, you have a bunch of poor women and men sitting in a room looking at a large pile of grants that they have to give a thoughtful response to. And if you do not spoon feed what the message is with explicit diagrams and recurring themes and pointers back and forth so that when the person who's the primary reviewer is supposed to respond and say what was great about the grant, you have lined it up so they don't have to sweat. And so I could go long about that, but that's not what we're here to talk about. No, but that's, uh, I mean, it seems like uh, having a sense of your audience and understanding and, you know, it, and in a way that's less cynical than one might imagine. I mean, it's not, there's a whole bunch of criticisms about grants saying, oh, you know, you're supposed to be incremental versus versus innovative. But this sounds like almost more stylistic. I was just trying to make sure people understand uh, what you're talking about. Um, I want to get to this other topic. I know you've played a central role in the design and architecture of a number of different, pretty much every major uh, important data sharing initiative, including I2B2 and the Undiagnosed Disease Network. And um, you also lead a relatively new department at Harvard, the Department of Biomedical Informatics, where disclosure and privilege to serve as an adjunct. Um, um, but I, what I want to talk about with that context is you're in many ways distinct at Harvard. Well, I'm sure in many ways distinct at Harvard. Um, but with your long-term emphasis on entrepreneurship in a university that has not always been especially hospitable to this, um, what's your current view of entrepreneurship as you see it? And do you have you seen a change in the environment at Harvard? Um, so, yes, I have seen a, a change in, in the, uh, the view of entrepreneurship. I would say that when I was in training, there was a definite uh, look-down-your-nose phenomenon about entrepreneurship. We were somehow above that. And I, was, I remember the jolt I felt when I was being recruited to Stanford back in the 90s and seeing how uh, aggressively uh, positive uh, the department chairs at Stanford at the School of Medicine were about entrepreneurship you know, and openly bragging to me about their entrepreneurial involvement, something that I did not see at all at Harvard. But it's really been a sea change. And I think it's been a sea change because among the dynamic young people that we're training, 
regardless of what uh, the old guard uh, might think, uh, the young people understand the current uh, ethos and excitement about translating your ideas from an idea, from a publication, from a proof of principle, to something that's being scaled up industrially to affect millions of uh, healthcare consumers. Is there an entrepreneur that you particularly admire, somebody who really, you know, came came to the fore for you and who you think about as a, as a role model for others or yourself? As a role model? Um, I'm not sure he's a, a role model, but I, I became more and more aware of um, someone in materials science at MIT who um, has been responsible for, it feels like, dozens of companies have you have you ever worked with him? Um, Who is that? I'm just having a senior moment. Bob Langer. Oh no, I've I've heard of him, but I don't know him. So Bob Langer has a factory of companies coming out of his um, HST lab. He has developed ways of encapsulating drugs, delivering them, delivering them from various devices. Although I did not collaborate with him, it was very clear to me that this was someone who was having enormous impact on the way drugs were being delivered to patients. Yeah, well, you mentioned that, um, you know, I think probably inspired by both the examples of people like uh, Bob for a while, but that also by so much of what they're seeing in the environment, you had mentioned that the young people you work with. Oh, yeah, I, 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 yeah I, that's a very good point. Actually, that is probably even more realistic. I was much more impressed by the young people uh, who I work with. So, for example, you mentioned previously Atul Butte, one of my uh, former... Uh, uh, PhD students and fellows, and a tool as an undergrad at Brown had already built a company that did, using a Macintosh, imaging solutions for cardiologists to look at the movies of the angiograms. And that was one of his companies. And every time he talked about another idea, for him it was a natural thing to think about how would you embody that new insight as a company. And so that company, I think, was quite successful in the sense of making a lot of money for an undergrad. Some of his other companies um, were less successful just because he didn't pursue them, but were terrific ideas. For example, he had a small company called Real-Time Recruiting back, I think, in the 1990s, which when you had a patient of interest in the emergency room, you got paged and you recruited the patient. So, for example, if the electronic health record identified a patient who came in with hypoglycemia but did not have diabetes and therefore might be one of these mitochondrial disease patients that were not known about, you'd get paged. And he did some pretty impressive studies powered by that infrastructure. And so as a result, um, and also I think probably because of my interaction with a lot of MIT professors, who, including my own uh, thesis advisor, Pete Solvich, who had built some companies in uh, sort of the AI uh, 80s, it did not require much of an emotional or intellectual leap for me to try to found uh, companies even starting in the late 1990s. And I know that you've, you've found that you found it uh, uh, quite a number of them. It sounds like you, um, and I know I share this, uh, really view um, uh, entrepreneurship as part of the translational mission, though it doesn't sound like everyone has that perspective. How do you sort of walk that um, line? So um, the way I've walked that line is to be just quite blunt about it. And so there are some colleagues of mine who are friends who um, historically have not shared that view of entrepreneurship and treat it with a lot of suspicion, like 
as if it will somehow corrupt uh, our science and corrupt our mission. And I've been very, very blunt. I said, I, I explained to them that I view this as important in terms of my impact upon medicine and the impact of our department as anything else I do, that if it does not translate to commerce, I actually don't feel like we've been as impactful as we can and should be. Well, that's such an unusual viewpoint, I think, from somebody who's primarily lives in the academic side of the world. I think, you know, there still remains quite a uh, sort of mental confusion about what's good and, and wrong and bad and, and right and all of that between the business and the academic side of the world. And I'm always fascinated, even at the business schools, how many of the professors are not from business. They're from academia. And it's always fascinating to me how that differs from the ones who are. Um, when you when you sort of find yourself drifting to what you love most, do you drift to the academic? Do you drift to the business? What's your, you know, what's your secret favorite thing? My secret favorite thing is, is working with young, smart people. It really oh, okay. is. That's what turns me on. And so I, I can see myself... I could see myself doing that in both venues, but what's really nice is that I feel like um, I feel like someone who's getting uh, pitched all sorts of interesting balls with different spins um, and different uh, sizes based on where the students are coming from. And because in academia I'm not in business, I don't have to, in my own day-to-day -day life, be so focused on getting the minimal viable product or making sure that we're meeting exactly the goals. I have been involved in, in startups, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, in many ways exciting and um, energizing mission, but the, the need for absolute focus is quite terrifying for, for me and does not allow me to have some of the wide-ranging conversations I enjoy having with the students. And so I'd much, I'd much rather find uh, a respectful relationship with uh, teams of my colleagues who are willing to go out there and, and focus in that fashion and so that I can get some vicarious joy and uh, filthy lucre uh, from, <laughs> uh, from, uh, from that uh, translation to, um, to practice. So, Zach, so that's fantastic. So we, we, I know we're running out of time here, but I, I, um, I do have to ask you this last question. So in, in an almost Don Quixote-like fashion, um, you continue to tilt away at the idea of data sharing, and you seem um, almost remarkably undaunted by the serial challenges and obvious obstacles uh, in a fashion that evokes a mutual hero of ours, uh, Judah Folkman, who, as you recently reminded me, had some memorable thoughts on persistence versus obstinacy. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, so uh, there's many uh, versions of that, uh, that story, but certainly Judah was quite persistent, despite a lot of skepticism of his colleagues, that there was a diffusible substance coming out of tumors that were uh, bizarrely uh, stopping other tumors from growing blood vessels. And he uh, had the vision of how that would turn into these antigenic anti products. But every step of the way, uh, from whether this substance existed to whether it could actually be used uh, pharmacologically, there was immense skepticism, including very close to home at Harvard. And he had a fantastic lecture about the difference between obstinacy and um, persistence, where the punchline basically, basically was it was only after the fact that you knew whether you'd been obstinate, i.e. unsuccessful, or persistent, i.e. successful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's other, there's, there's other versions of this. I just heard a, a very nice uh, podcast interview with uh, Mark Andreessen, where he says uh, in Silicon Valley there's very few good ideas. It's just whether it's the right idea at that time. So I think timing is a lot of it. And so... I'm very, very convinced. I, I, don't, I don't have too many worries about the following axiom, axiomatic statement, 
which is medicine is fundamentally an information and uh, knowledge processing business. And to the extent we ignore it, it's at our peril. It's at the peril of our patients getting uh, good decisions. It's at the peril of our healthcare systems unaware of uh, trends that are uh, killing, hurting a lot of their patients. And it's at, it's at the peril of uh, missed business opportunities as well. And so I have no particular concern that we will not uh, be eventually in a realization of that uh, nature of medicine as a fully information and a discipline. And that's, by the way, why we have this new department at Harvard, because of that conviction. And it's really a matter of which entrepreneurs are going to find the right keys and the right technologies to actually make that a viable business proposition today. I've been working on a number of some, some such solutions, some of which may, in fact, end up in those uh, disruptive uh, business plans. The only question is when. Well, that's really exciting. And I, uh, I'll i tell you, Zach, that I have on my wall a quote from Santayana, which is, a fanatic is someone who redoubles his effort when he has forgotten his aim. I always love that quote. Yeah. Uh, pertinent to your commentary. Thank you so much for your time today. I really uh, have enjoyed listening to you and appreciate your, your coming on the show. Thank you so much, Zach. This was fantastic. Thank you very much. And I'll enjoy continuing to listen to your wonderful podcast. So that was Zach Kohaney, the uh, chair of the Department of uh, Biomedical Informatics at Harvard, speaking with us from Boston. And what a fascinating interview. Well, it's so much fun to talk to somebody who's just so damn smart and also real. Yeah, very grounded. I mean, I love the guy and so passionate. And he's really, I mean, Annette, what's remarkable is, one, he was at this uh, integration of data, like, long before people even real, like, completely realized that it was going to be a thing and how important it was. I mean, really trying to bring together data systems from three major hospitals. I mean, that was really both one of right. his first grants, and I think it also became uh, even one of his his first business proposals. So interesting. I was also so heartened by his take on, on entrepreneurship because Me too, that, yeah. having grown up in that environment, he's right about Bob Langer, but Bob Langer was really, you know, not the only exception, but there was a lot of, huge amount of, 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 of scolding of ivory tower of of, of, of sort of, of anything business equals evil. And I think I've always, I mean, I remember. You well, know, I mean, you, honestly, with, if you translate the clinical developments that matter into the business realm, what good are they? And I think at the idea of entrepreneurship as the vehicle of translation, it seems you know so obvious to us out here in California. But I think, um, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it, it's nice to see that it's becoming more, you know, more universally appreciated. I, I found that just so, so encouraging. Join us next week, if you will, when we'll speak with Deneen Voita, Executive Vice President of R&D at United Health Group. Please also remember to uh, rate us on uh, iTunes. Uh, rate us, judge us, tell us we're, uh, we're worthy. Please remember to follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Take care. Sayonara.